The Across Her Table podcast is constantly trying to tell stories that inspire. If you like what we are doing, could you please consider subscribing to us? We're a small indie podcast and small gestures of support from you can go a really long way for us. And while you're at it, do you mind giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts? When you recommend us to a friend, it helps us build stronger networks and reach more people. We can impact change simply by spreading the word. So share the joy. This is Mifra Abid from the Greater Toronto area and you're listening to Across Her Table. This is a podcast where I talk to remarkable Canadian women with immigrant roots and how they're contributing to the social narrative in Canada. Moving to Canada has been an adventure for me, and every day I meet inspiring women who have stories to tell, values to share, and so much to give to their communities. Let's get started. Amira Al-Kawabi's TEDx talk on Canada's multiculturalism is a delight to watch. Amira is an award-winning journalist and a human rights advocate. She has worked with major Canadian news networks, including The Globe and the Mail and the CBC. She is now currently a contributing columnist at the Toronto Star. But that's not the biggest highlight of her career. She's a founding member of the Anti-Hate Network Canada, a non-profit that works towards combating bigotry and hate in the country. She's also a board member of the Silk Route Institute, an organization that uses cultural arts to promote understanding and empathy between communities. Assalamu alaikum, Amira, and welcome to Across the Table. Thank you so much for having me, Afra. So uh, we sh- the first question we generally ask people is about their roots. And you talked a lot about them in your TED talk, uh, you know, TEDx talks last year. But um, I want to like, you know, go a little further and ask you more about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, and I have actually been giving, um, giving all all my background a little bit more thought in preparation for this interview. And, um, you know, I think... I think there's, for all of us, there's always so many factors um, in our childhood, in our background that really help inform, you know, how we view the world, you know, who we grow up to be and aspire to. So, you know, along with um, just being, you know, the child of immigrants, you know, my parents uh, came to Canada in the late uh, 1970s at a time where Canada was extremely, extremely open to immigration. Um, you know, uh, they were coming from Egypt. My father um, often sort of tells the story of how, you know, he was working as an engineer um, in the airline industry and, you know, had the opportunity to, to take a pretty good job in Egypt um, and, and, you know, settle down there, which would have, of course, pleased his mother and siblings very much. But, you know, <laughs> he heard that Canada was really looking for immigrants and 
the sense of adventure, you know, going to this strange place that, you know, he really considered was a land of, of just snow and ice. You know, that's actually how he imagined it would be. He arrived, I think he jokes that he arrived in July with this really heavy winter coat, you know, and, and I'm very surprised to find it warm. You know, no one had the internet back then and information was, uh, was passed around, you know, through friends of friends. So how does the wires mixed up? And, um, you know, has that really cute story. And, and he was just looking for adventure as a young man. Um, and then, you know, he, he would return to Egypt, meet my mom. And then uh, a little while later, um, they got married. Um, she stayed on in Cairo for her studies before um, actually giving birth to me in Cairo. And once she was done her studies with the support of her family, you know, um, my dad went and brought her back to, to Canada where they, where they would settle um, and remain. So um, it's, it's always neat to hear that story, you know, same with my mom, like she, you know, I think they'd, they'd both imagined that they would, you know, stay in Egypt, but the opportunity and um, the world seemed, you know, this wonder, wonderful, adventurous place. And um, they both embraced that adventure. Um, and when they came to Canada, you know, my dad, you know, he, he often, you know, talks about, um, you know, having an accent, having some challenges. Um, but overall, you know, I think, um, you know, he really just like many, many, like most immigrants, you know, was really um, intent on succeeding, on, you know, giving the very best of his skills and knowledge that he had worked so hard to to gain. And for my mom, I think, you know, while it was difficult to be far away from her family, like, you know, again, we have to remember all of this in the context of no internet, you know, a phone phone call to Cairo, I remember like three minutes worth was, you know, cost like $20. And at the time, $20 was, you know, could have been $100. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I remember we'd record, you know, cassette tapes and mail them and they'd get there a month or two months later to her family (laughs) and they'd write, you know, they'd they'd record cassettes, they'd come back to us two months later. So, you know, when you think about it, um, our our parents, our generation of parents, and and of course, you know, earlier and early generations, it really was quite a leap of faith to, to come to a new country. And, you know, when my father said goodbye to his mom, he he didn't even know if he'd be able to have enough money to return. It was pretty much a one-way ticket. Mm-hmm. And so for us, when we hear those stories, I think a, a number of things come to us. And I can't speak for, of course, everyone's experience, but I, I've heard this from other friends and acquaintances that you recognize like how much um, hope and um, hard work and resilience that our parents exhibited in 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 this leap of faith, um, in hoping for a better future for themselves and and eventually for their own children. And so I think that that can sometimes be a bit of a burden because you know for us growing up, like I remember you know feeling the the weight of the world on your shoulders. You you know they want mm-hmm. you to succeed and they want you to do even better than they did. Um, and also you know, understanding that, um, you know, they expect, they expect, you know, nothing from the hardest, nothing but the hardest effort. And so, um, so that can be both a burden and a blessing um, in different ways. And, and certainly, certainly that overcoming of their cultural barriers and, and working, you know, really hard to, to fit in and to succeed really did help inform my vision of, you know, 
Canada at its best, I would say, um, where it, it permits people to explore their potential. Now, of course, um, as I talk extensively about in the TED Talk, uh, Canada was not this utopia and is, has never been a utopia. I would only learn about, you know, Indigenous communities much later and all of our hor- horrific history. Even now, we're, you know, we're, we're again reminded of the history of Black people in this country as, as we're talking now, you know, mm-hmm. in the midst of this whole conte- context um, of Black Lives Matter and, and not only looking at the U.S., but knowing that in Canada as well, the history has been far from ideal and in fact quite oppressive against Black people people, Indigenous communities, minority communities. So, but anyhow, when I heard the stories from my parents, it really was through rose-colored glasses that I viewed opportunity in this country. And and I think I carried those rose-colored glasses for quite a long time. I grew up in the in Saudi Arabia in the 80s. And I remember the cassette bit, you know, we recording voices and sending to family back home in India. So it just triggered a memory, you know, when you said that in your story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, the cassette tapes, you, you know, you'd get, you'd get them with so much excitement. I mean, that was really how I was acquainted with my grandparents, with my aunts and uncles, even though we would visit, like eventually as I got older, um, when I was in elementary school and a little bit older, my mom would take us back for visits, but that would like be every three years, right? So to keep that connection, um, they would write letters to one another. But for me, I, I didn't know how to write Arabic. Um, I couldn't read it. So the cassette tape was was that way to have that connection with our, with our extended family. So true. So when you decided to become a journalist, what was the factor that motivated you towards that? Yeah, so, so it's interesting because originally... Um, I wanted to become a fashion designer. That was what okay. I was really interested in. Um, and um, like many immigrant families who have very specific ideas of what their children uh, <laughs> are doing, um, my father, uh, first and foremost, he, of course, wanted me to be an engineer because he loved math. <laughs> and, as he, and as he would say, if you understand math, you understand life and you're set. Unfortunately, <laughs> I guess I didn't understand life too much because I was not into math at all. Um, and when I told him I'd be a fashion designer, he, you know, he was not too keen and just said to me, uh, you know, it's going to be really hard to make a living in that industry. Is there anything else you're interested in? So at the time, I liked to write. I was quite keen on writing. And I said, OK, well, maybe, you know, journalism. It, it appealed to me in the sense of. Um, being able to write and ask people questions. Like I love the idea of being able to like, you know, just call up the office of the prime minister if I want it <laughs> and say, what do you think about this? You know, and I'm writing for this <laughs> publication and to be able to get an answer. That, that really appealed to me. And I was a very curious person. And I always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. I, I, um, I was very fascinated by other cultures. I, I should say that part of my, my early years, we had spent a few years actually living in Indonesia while my dad had an assignment um, overseas. So from age 10 to age 14, um, we lived, I lived with my family in, in Bandung, um, oh. a very small little village, uh, not village. I mean, it was smaller now. It's, I'm sure it's quite a large city bustling, but then it was, it was still growing. And, and I, I was exposed to so many people from around the world. I went to an international school, um, very small school. Like there was 10 kids per grade and pretty much, you know, you knew their families and their siblings and you went to their houses and people from, you know, originally from, you know, Holland and Denmark and, um, 
Philippines, China, um, you know, name a country. And there was usually a student and their family, you know, visit New Zealand, Australia, that sort of thing. And I loved it. Like I loved meeting people from all over the world. I loved learning about different cultures. Mm-hmm. So the idea of being like a foreign correspondent was terribly exciting uh, to me. Um, and so I said that to my dad. I said, yeah, let, you know, how about journalism? He's like, okay, okay. Yeah, I'm sure people will be reading newspapers for a long time. <laughs> yeah. I like I liked his thought process. <laughs> well, well, that's hilarious because the irony, of course, is that newspapers are dead now. <laughs> that, you know, 20,000 journalists have lost their jobs in Canada alone in the past decade, quite sadly. And uh, the Islamic fashion industry is booming. <laughs> irony right the irony so I, I tell that sometimes when I'm giving talks to young students and I say you know what I mean of course listen to your parents I don't regret you know listening to my dad and, and my my mom but at the same time if you have a passion uh, I also encourage people to try to get to see your parents to see it from your point of view because at the end of the day if you're passionate about something and you're going to do it in the most excellent way and excel at it you know, mm-hmm. I, I do believe you should do whatever, whatever really drives you. I think it's so important to do that in your life. Mm-hmm. So Amir, as a journalist, which was the hardest story that you ever covered? Oh, I didn't expect that question. <laughs> um, well, so there's a lot of, I mean, the hardest story, there's, there, there's two hard stories that I covered in my early uh, years, um, working actually as an intern at the Toronto Star. Um, this is back in like, I would say 2000. Um, I remember there was a really sad story about a little boy, I think he was three years old, who had fallen from a balcony um, oh. in Toronto. And I was asked to go and try to interview neighbors and friends about what happened. And mm-hmm. you know, those are the those are very difficult stories because you, you know it's it's a sad story. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I always remember that. And the other story um, I worked on, and it was you know at the time um, it was with reporters like Michelle Shepard, who would later become this huge name in journalism. At the time, she was pretty still pretty new, I think, at the Star. But um, I worked with her and a few other reporters on the very again another sad story of a mother who had just, you know, given birth and she had a very severe, severe postpartum depression and she jumped with her baby uh, oh. in front of the subway. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. That's sad. It was a very sad story. And so, you know, like having to try to like hunt information about her family. Of course, I went to her family's home. Obviously, they did not open for me. Like those are those moments where personally, I, I question, you know, like I get that there's a story, like there's a deep story about postpartum depression and, and, um, and how we talk about it. And actually her mother was a woman who worked in depression and mental health. So it was doubly sad that, you know, that this happened and her daughter didn't get the help she needed, you know, no blame on the mom, but it was just so sad, like from all, all different angles. Um, and again, so as a, as a kind of a student journalist <laughs> reporter, I was just like, whoa, this is, this is very heavy stuff um, mm-hmm. that I, that I, I never really forgot. Um, and then of course, like, you know, being a reporter after 9-11, like later after, you know, I, I just graduated from Carleton University where I took journalism here in Ottawa and um, I would work at the CBC. I joined the CBC soon after um, and I was there um, right after 9-11 and booking stories and um, and and doing, you know, I remember I did a special kind of 
short feature for TV Ontario about what it was like to, you know, to be a, a young Muslim Canadian in that moment. Um, and so it was, you know, that was another, uh, and that, and that, of course, that the burden of that uh, reporting on on that story in the aftermath, you know, it lasted at least a year because almost every single story that we did after that for the next year was all related to, you know, since 9-11, since mm-hmm. 9-11, this has changed, this has changed, this is like, it was, you know, I, I, I don't want to, it's not the same as the pandemic per se, but mm-hmm. it was, it was a, it was a, a truly transformative moment, you know, that, um, that that really had a huge impact on a wide swath of our lives, and mm-hmm. so as a journalist in the middle of that, you know, it was, um, you know, it was it was quite quite startling to be uh, experiencing that, and then also because I had only um, a few months prior decided to wear the headscarf mm. and, and to you know as as a as a visible visual commitment that I had sort of made to start practicing Islam, um, and so you know when I had started doing that, um, just a little bit before, you know, um, there, there was of course some Islamophobia a little bit, but it was Mm -hmm. very, very minor compared to, you know, Mm. what would happen after a 9-11, you know, where, you know, it, it was this, this, um, you know, the, we were dealing with this huge tragedy that we're, just like everybody else shocked and saddened and horrified by. And then of course that double burden of feeling like, wow, like this is Islam. Islam mm. did this. And mm-hmm. like, no, of course not. But you know, it was it was huge. So again, reporting in that context and I and I did talk about that in the TED talk. So, Amir, you've been part of the Anti-Hate Network of Canada and the Silk Road Institute, and you've been always a vocal advocate for human rights, so long before it was trending or becoming a hashtag. So, I have a question to ask regards to the protests about George Floyd. Recently, our own premier said some comment like, we are different than the United States, and we don't have the systemic deep roots that they've had for years, unquote. So, of course, he retracted it later with some other comments, but what is your take on that? Do you think... Uh, there's still a largely held belief that, oh, we are so much superior to U.S., that there's no racism here. Yeah, I think I think, again, the problem is a lack of history. And I, I talked about that a little bit um, earlier that, um, you know, even myself, I had rose colored glasses on for a long time, probably until my early 20s, when I started to understand Canada's history with indigenous communities and um, and a, a little bit later with uh, Canada's black communities. And until today, I don't really know enough about the history with black communities or other minorities because it wasn't something that was talked about in our public school education. It was not something, you know, it's rare to have a heritage minute about these the, the the painful chapter chapters you know i've seen the heritage minute that the government did on you know the underground railway it makes us feel really good you know canada was a safe haven for for black people uh, escaping you know um you you know the us's uh, slavery um that they had there and then it's this assumption that canada was free of such oppression and of course it wasn't and um and there is a very very um 
detailed uh, history over different decades of different ways um, that Black people have been discriminated against. And so, um, you know, I, I don't want to forgive general the general public, the general person on the street for ne- necessarily not fully knowing that history. But mm-hmm. our political leaders, our political leaders have a responsibility and a duty to educate themselves and to understand and to listen and to hear from communities, you know, how um, current policies or decisions that were made before that are still being implemented now, how they're impacting on their communities. So, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, it, ignorance should not be an excuse for the general public. The moment, um, this moment that we're in has been uh, very eye-opening. It's sad that it takes a Black man dying in public, you know, public lynching. And just before that, there was Ahmed Arbery. Mm-hmm. And, and um, uh, there's, there's been so many other cases. Um, so the point is, is, you know, how, mm-hmm. how can we move beyond waiting for horror to, uh, to be shown to us on video? Um, and how can we, on a regular basis, be looking at our systems, at our communities, at our policies, at every level, at the municipal level, provincial level, and federal level, to be asking, you know, how is this or that policy hindering or impinging on people's ability to, to contribute? And or what can we do to address barriers that have appeared in different for different communities for a variety of reasons, historic and contemporary? How are we going to address those? So you know, it, you can't really excuse a politician um, for for not knowing this history. I think it should be it's like politics one hundred and one. Know 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 the history of the people you represent. Mm-hmm. I mean, talking about racism, uh, I want to de- talk about racism within the Muslim community. Well, I, I don't I don't necessarily want to start thinking about how other people are handling it. I'm going to first actually think about myself. Um, you know. I, I want to say that even for me, you know, I say I'm a human rights advocate, I want to be an advocate, but I have had blind spots. I haven't always been the best advocate. I have made mistakes. I have been called out by people I consider to be friends or, you know, people I respect who have, you know, asked me, you know, Amira, have you been very representative in, say, this program that you're suggesting or, you know, your organization? How representative is it of the community that you say that you serve? I've been questioned myself and I have found blind spots. Absolutely. I have found ignorance within me. And so I don't want to necessarily call out communities i i i think a lot of people have already mm-hmm. done that i think and and you know rightfully so in many cases there's there is a reason to call out each other and and i think for communities that feel that they've been marginalized they they should say it though i don't want them to carry that burden but what, what i would say is that i have tried to look internally and i have found um i have found areas that i need to work on and I think the key is to be open to receiving feedback and thinking about, you know, how are we more inclusive in the spaces that we try to create, in the ways that we try to engage. Um, and of course, we know racism is wrong. We know discrimination is wrong. We know all of that from our faith, but also from general mm-hmm. universal human rights values. Um, it's just common knowledge and common sense. 
But again, just like I would call on politicians to educate themselves and to ensure that their policies are not harming or hindering um, uh, potential, we need to do that in our own spaces as well. You know, how easy is it for people to be engaged, for for example, in our mosques? Mm-hmm. How fair is the process and transparent in terms of deciding who is mm-hmm. a board member, who is not? How are we doing outreach? How are we ensuring representation? And when and I say representation, sometimes representation can be um, almost token tokenistic, where the real power still lies in a central place. Um, so how do we share power? How do we ensure that it's not, um, you know, carried in, say, Mm. one family or one community, um, and then sort of having tokens that are there to sort of rubber stamp. Or even with, we do this with young people sometimes. I've seen that where young people are just kind of tokens, but they don't have any real power beyond, you know, holding the donation box, Mm -hmm. right? So I think, and, and of course, women, you'll have a token woman not always they will have an opportunity to, you know, they might have the sisters committee, but they may not have an opportunity to fully engage in major decision-making around say fundraising efforts or whatnot. So, so we need to, we need to just, and it's easy for me to say this because at the moment I'm not sitting on the board of a mosque organization or, or that. Um, but I do, as I, as you noted, I sit on the board of the Silk Road Institute, which is, um, a Canadian Muslim organization that is intended, intending and works on ensuring that um, Canadian Muslim artists and culture is visible, celebrated, um, to promote cross-cultural dialogue and understanding, which is it's a wonderful organization. I actually encourage people to learn more about it, Silk Road Institute. And so there we, we do try to be representative and we do think about how can we be more inclusive. And, and we're always checking ourselves. We're always double checking and challenging and thinking, you know, nobody is perfect. And, and we have to enter all of these conversations and be willing to listen to criticism. That is so true. That is so true, inshallah. And now see, I'm mean, you're a parent. And obviously nowadays, a lot of parents are asking, how do we talk about uh, these race issues with our children? So do you have any tips uh, for parents out there? How do you talk to your own children about it? You know, they're actually talking to me. <laughs> you know, they're they're coming to me and um and um like I've got two teenage girls and a and a young son who's six and um they're they're not they're at this age when they're teenagers they they're not going to listen to me so I have to just be the one listening and they're going to come to me when they want to talk and um and they're getting their information and their news from TikTok like that's their or Instagram and so something like this tragedy and horror in the U.S. with the, with the Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all these who have been killed at the hands of police, um, it's taken over their social media and they have to look. And so then they are upset and it's upsetting and it's difficult. And, and it's just for me just to be there and just to try to provide some kind of direction as to how do we channel this grief like Mm -hmm. like actually one of my daughters was extremely like deeply 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 grieved understandably so like but you know I'd never seen her so emotional And and I was glad she was emotional I was glad she was feeling but she didn't know what to do with that pain and that sorrow and, and so it's trying to say, look, yes, it's horrific. And, you know, and human beings can be terrible, but we mustn't give up. We, you know, we have to look for the hope. We have to look for ways to be the opposite of that, to be loving and kind and, and fighting for human rights for everyone 
Um, and, and so that's, I find that's the hardest thing. And, and so I can't fully give advice in the sense Mm -hmm. that it's just listen. And then for the younger, for younger ones, I mean, there's a moment where you, you can talk to them, but it's a very, it's a very tricky thing because you also, you also don't want to shatter their innocence because they're, they're themselves are not racist. (laughs) Like, you know, unless they're taught, right. Racism is a taught behavior, you know. My my son has friends from various backgrounds. He he would never consider one is different than another. Like they're all his buddies, right? It doesn't matter their skin color. Uh-huh. So I don't necessarily want to break that innocence, not yet and not now. But when he starts asking those questions and having to explain that the world sadly um, does have a lot of um, negativity in it. And we just have to counter that with faith and positivity, inshallah. Inshallah. So on a lighter note now, uh, <laughs> when you write articles and all, do you have writer's block anytime? All the time. All the time. <laughs> uh, like, subhanAllah, like, every time I write an article, I feel like it's a miracle. <laughs> because <laughs> there are times where I have similar, like many different things I want to write about. And so I just, I get blocked into like, which one do I do? And <laughs> and then because I, you know, this is not my full time um, sometimes I'm, I'm really like wishing that I had more time. And, uh, and sometimes I can put it out, like I can write something within an hour. Sometimes it takes like three, four days to properly get it. And, and, and I struggle with it. So it's hard. But the advice that I have for anyone who's listening, who wants to write, for example, opinion pieces in particular, um, is, you know, you just have to keep doing it. Like the first, um, the first column that I wrote, um, not as a reporter or journalist, but just as like just just as a writer, was back in I think two thousand and nine, so just around eleven years ago, and it was for the Globe and Mail, and um, you know it was it was really a fluke. I I wanted to write about. Um, Canadian Muslims and the fact that we don't really tell our stories enough, that we put out mm-hmm. press releases and, you know, we'll make statements, but we didn't, you know, back in 2009, um, we didn't have a way to celebrate, you know, our, um, uh, our communities. We didn't have a lot of, you know, young adult youth writers who are writing, you know, uh, young, like literature for young adults. We didn't have Little Mosque on the Prairie yet, I don't think. Right. So we just did not have a lot of storytelling happening. And so I just wrote it and then I pitched it and it got published mm-hmm. much to my surprise. And then, you know, over the years since then, I just try to write, try to like, whenever I'm upset about something, particularly it's when you're upset about something <laughs> that you want to write about it <laughs> and you just write. And I've always opened my door, even, you know, even your listeners, anyone who's interested in just finding me on LinkedIn or on Twitter, I've always been committed to helping anyone with their writing, if they need it, if they need any tips or support or editing. Um, I've also done this actually for uh, New Canadian Media, which is a website that supports um, immigrant writers and reporters to help them share stories. Because I'm very much committed to having more and more, seeing more and more diverse voices in our mainstream media, in our um, in our arts, in our, um, in our pop culture. Like we need to be out there with our stories because um, that way people will understand that, you know, we've got so much diversity and we are not the stereotype unfortunately that Hollywood has um, peddled in for so long actually I'm so glad you brought this up because that is one of the motives behind this podcast was to tell you know 
women, Muslim women particularly, immigrant women to tell their own stories their way, mm. not through somebody else's perspective. Like, um, I remember somebody asking me that, why did you start this? And why didn't you just tell those stories, you know, instead of calling these people? Why this particular mode of, you know, podcasting? And I said, because it won't be the lived in experience. Yeah. It'll still be a third person perspective. It'll still have my biases, my prejudices. But if you hear it straight from the person who has lived that experience, it's a, a wholly different, you know, about it all together. No, absolutely. I think it's brilliant. And that's why like, I was really, really happy when you reached out to me and uh, really excited by the other guests that I've seen that you're featuring and and knowing, you know, your intention with this podcast. Absolutely. This is a wonderful example of, you know, us taking, you know, control um, over our own narratives and, um, and not only for young people and to inspire and to share with our young people what we've gone through, but also to see what people are doing right now who are maybe older, um, you know, I'm older and I'm happy to share some of my perspectives and it's never too late to get involved and engaged in, in whether it's politics, whether it's writing, whether it's human rights. I mean, there's so much work to be done to make our society better and more inclusive for everyone. There's so much work to go around and alhamdulillah, like our faith teaches us that, you know, every good deed is an act of worship. So even mm-hmm. if it's that simple smile that we that we give now, of course, we wear masks, so it's harder to smile. <laughs> but you know, when you can give a smile, even that is is a wonderful act of, um, you know, good deed. So so imagine, you know, I've seen so many beautiful stories, actually, like we've come so far as Canadian Muslims in terms of seeing our stories told, you know, like just in this pandemic, you know, there's the Conquer, uh, Conquer COVID team um friends of mine yeah. who started that um you know i've seen the the efforts to uh, help seniors during this time again by canadian muslims like our community keeps stepping up and has always stepped up but just didn't get the didn't get the the ink right and now we are you know we really are and mash- mashallah like i'm so proud of all that we've accomplished and you know i think that um and while there's still much work to do, while Islamophobia still is an issue, I think um, we have come a far way, at least since I've been engaged in this type of work. Hmm. So here's to more work and more stories and uh, more narratives with diverse voices. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I mean. I mean. So thank you so much, Amira. This was such an invigorating uh, conversation. Thank you, Mifra. I really appreciate the time and I really uh, look forward to hearing more of your episodes. Keep up the great work. If you like this episode, please subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We would also love to hear from you. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or just email us at feedback at acrossatable.com.